As Adam said, our speaker is for this hour is Jeff Miller. Uh, Jeff is part of the uh, uh, Apologetics Press that um, uh, has, is doing such great work uh, in the area of apologetics and Christian evidences around the Brotherhood. Um, they are we here at Bear Valley are also uh, connected with Apologetics Press in that they teach some of our classes here at Bear Valley. Uh, they teach that um, over the uh, over the computer. They're not here on a regular basis uh, in town, so we're glad to have occasions like this when they are here on campus. Uh, but the uh, the work that they do the the. Um, uh, academic background and credibility that they have is just tremendous and we are so blessed for our students to be able to be exposed to that level of instruction uh, and to prepare them to go out and preach uh, the, um, the the good news of the kingdom. I want to read just a few of the um, um, some of the information I guess I should say about Jeff and his bio but he graduated summa cum laude with honors at Fried Hardeman receiving a, a, a BS degree in physical science and minors in Bible French and mathematics he earned a, a Bachelor of Science in Mechanical Engineering from the University of Texas at Arlington his academic honors included membership in several honor societies including Pi Tau Sigma Mechanical Engineering um, Honor Society Golden Key International Honor Society Alpha Chi National Honor Society and the National Society of Collegiate Scholars. Despite all of that, we still think he's a pretty good teacher. <laughs> no, he has the he has earned the right to stand before us and speak on uh, some of the uh, the scientific things that that he is so capable of doing, but also to preach the word. And so, brother, come preach the word to us. Preach the word. <laughs> This is a topic I'm pretty passionate about. Uh, this topic of the flood is something I've been studying. A lot of the work I've been doing at Apologetics Press for the last several years is involved. Uh, the topic of the biblical flood in large part because of uh, the fact that this is now coming under such a strong attack. It used to really just to be evolution that we had to deal with and now we're having to be able to make the case for our position as well as be able to defend it. And so you're going to get to get a cliff note version of what the uh, the students here get in my Christian Evidences course. The second half of the course is is, is devoted to making the case for uh, the biblical creation model and then being able to defend that. So you're going to get to get a Cliff Notes version of this. A lot of this material uh, is covered in my book that's written on about a ninth grade uh, reading level so it's not too heavy, not too technical has a lot of pictures and so forth, makes it easier to, uh, to comprehend and a lot of this material is available at a deeper level on our website in the form of articles and so forth and so be sure to check that out I think we're selling it on the bookstore uh, upstairs all right uh, yeah a good thematic verse for a study of creation science study of the flood would be Psalm 111 2 the works of the Lord are great studied by all who have pleasure in them is that not uh, God telling us to engage in science to learn about the great works that God has done uh, of course the biggest two works that he did from a physical perspective would be 
the flood and uh, the and the creation of Genesis 1 and so he then wants us to be able to defend that model 1 Peter 3.15 and he wants us to remember the flood and the implications of that remember 2 Peter 3 weighs in on this that there will be people that will willfully forget the implications of the flood and that's very much what I deal with at Apologetics Press on a regular basis uh, Genesis 1 verses 3 through 5 describes for us the first world the original world as God created it this is a world which didn't last long uh, because Adam and Eve sinned and that caused God to curse the earth in different ways Adam and Eve were forced from the garden being barred from the tree of life and then starting in Genesis 3 6 the Bible describes with very few details the <coughs> fallen world that Adam and Eve and their descendants then experienced over the next 1600 years prior to the flood and we're given a few important clues about the world during that time in uh, Genesis 3 through 5 uh, most of what we learn however the fallen world comes from geology and paleontology uh, study the fossil record uh, which we could spend an entire uh, lesson just discussing that and which I do discuss in the flooded book and the guys uh, that take the course I uh, go into that much more in depth uh, in our course we can learn for example about what the actual geography of the earth may have been like at the very beginning it seems to be possibly alluded to there in Genesis 1 9 if you have all of the waters gathered into one place what does that imply about the land uh, we can learn about the living things that inhabited the earth prior to the flood how can we know about them well if we know what rock layers in the geologic column correspond to the flood then we can know what living creatures were like when the flood began by studying the fossil re uh, record and what creatures were like before that and the layers under them in some cases and so we find that the pre-flood world was inhabited by some amazing creatures uh, many of which we don't see today and we can even get a glimpse of pre-flood man uh, what humans may have looked like when they left the ark and then dispersed from Babel when we look at the rock layers immediately after the flood just above the flood layers but in this lesson we're interested in seeing what we can learn about the flood itself because this this comes uh, Psalm 104 comes in on this uh, so what we can learn about that event and we'll begin by looking at what we can learn from scripture about this event uh, Genesis 4.26, remember the last verse of chapter 4 tells us that after Seth begot Enosh, you have this key phrase stated there, men began to call on the name of the Lord, a phrase that occurs many times throughout scripture. Chapter 5 then gives us the lineage of those individuals, Seth and Enosh, the generations of individuals, presumably, who were calling on the name of the Lord. Things gradually declined over that next 1600 years. The reason for the flood given in the text is that every intent, every intention, the ESV says, of the thoughts of man's heart was only evil continually. You know, things are bad today, but in, at that point, people might have done something good, but they didn't intend to. Okay? It was a bad time. We're not that bad. There's some places in our country where it's bad, but as a whole, we are not that bad. And the cause of that wicked state is given in verses 1 and 2. The sons of God, which in this context I believe is referring to the, the pe people immediately talking, uh, being talked about in chapter 5, who are calling on the name of the Lord, they're following God, uh, keeping in mind there's no chapter divisions in the original. So those people began 
to notice physical beauty and prioritize that more in their marital decisions, presumably rather than spiritual attributes. And so the good people started marrying the daughter, uh, the daughters of men, the worldly people, based on these kind of things rather than spiritual beauty. Uh, let that be a warning to young people about the qualities they should be prizing. In verse 3, God states that mankind would have 120 years to repent from the time that God decided he was going to destroy the earth. Uh, It wouldn't have necessarily taken Noah anywhere near that amount of time to actually build this vessel. I estimate two to three decades he could have this done, looking at how many man hours went into, for example, building the Ark Encounter up in northern Kentucky. If we assume that he hired help, which is very likely, uh, then he, he would have had plenty of time to do this. Uh, When we study the math of God's statement here, compared to the lives of Noah's son, Jim, Ham, and Japheth, we see that God made the decision to destroy the earth, and Noah presumably began building the ark 20 years before uh, Shem, Ham, and Japheth had even been born yet. Uh, So they would have even been young during some of that period. Uh, God instructs Noah to build this large vessel, 300 by 50 by 30 cubits, and according to scholars, we estimate that would be a football field and a half long, 75 feet wide, 45 feet tall. Highly recommend you go check out the Ark Encounter if you've never done that. The minute you stand there and see the size of this, it immediately answers so many quibbles that people have ever brought up about the the flood. Noah is told to make this Ark out of this unknown wood called gopher wood, uh, put three levels on this, have room for th- rooms for the animals, cover it with pitch so that it doesn't leak, put a door in the side of it. God tells him to install this opening. This is not exactly a window uh, like we might learn about in our, in our young Bible classes, but according to the underlying Hebrew, an opening for light, possibly ventilation, that went around the top of the vessel and was a cubit in height. According to chapter 8, verse 13, a covering or awning of some sort is put over the opening as well which was left until the end of the the torrential heavy rain period and then Noah opens this window-like structure to see the state of things after that. God apparently sent the animals that he wanted on the ark to Noah. Noah didn't have to go hunt these down. That's significant from an apologetic standpoint. Noah didn't have to go figure out which uh, representatives would be the best genetically to bring about the diversity God wants after the flood. He didn't have to worry about that. God handles that for him. God, of course, understanding DNA and so forth. Male and female representatives of the unclean kinds of animals. And then according to chapter 7, seven representatives of the clean kinds of animals, probably seven individuals, not seven pairs. Uh, We have an article on our website that weighs in on that. Again, these are representatives of kinds, not species. Species is a term we've developed in the last couple centuries. The biblical term here is kind. Uh, Animals from the earth, including birds and reptiles, which would have included various, (coughs) in the creeping things, would have uh, included various reptiles, possibly some amphibians. Noah also brings food for his family and the animals and then after loading up God himself shuts the door which ensures a perfect seal and the fireworks begin and that of course brings us right up to this amazing event that we're supposed to study about the things that God has done are great they're worthy of our thought and reflection and consideration because they tell us about him they tell us about this being and what he thinks 
And the flood, again, probably the greatest work that he ever did on the earth from a physical standpoint. And yet the Bible only gives us a few details. It occurred four to 6,000 years ago, was global in its extent. It covers everything. The fountains of the deep are broken up and water comes from above. And then Psalm 104, the mountains rise, the valley sunk uh, down, and it lasted essentially a year. And that's about it. That's really not a lot to work with. So when we look up from the pages of Scripture, the special revelation that God has given us, and now start looking at the general revelation that he has given us in the world around us, we ask the question, what else can we learn about this event? What other things can we learn about God? Uh, What details might we gather that would help us to defend the biblical model? And does the the biblical portrait of this global flood even fit with what we see in science and so forth around us? Does the evidence from, for example, geology fit with Scripture? Some have argued it doesn't. There's just no way the flood could be global. There's just not enough water on the earth to do this. And so they look at the earth and say, hey, if the flood happened, where'd all the water go? Is it in the sky? No, because there's not enough water in the sky. If you took all the water in the atmosphere and emptied it on the earth, it would only raise the sea level about an inch. Is it in the ice caps? No, that's not going to do it. Uh, that would only cover uh, raise the sea, level, the sea level about 230 feet if you, if you melted the ice caps. Is it within the crust? That's a little more significant. There's an estimated six quintillion gallons of water in the Earth's crust today. And so if you pump all that back out onto the surface, you now raise the sea level another 600 feet. But notice, in total, we're only up to about 1,000 feet here, and yet we've got mountains that are 25,000 feet high. And so many who consider numbers like these and they still want to believe in the Bible will often reject a worldwide flood and argue that the flood had to be a local catastrophe instead of a global catastrophe. But as we'll see, that argument can't be sustained in light of science or scripture. The evidence demands a global catastrophe. And in fact, Psalm 104 is important in helping explain that concept. All right. Let's start with a depiction of this event, what modern Christian scientists believe occurred during the first few hours of the flood.
there's a few things that the creation scientists would tweak about that, but that's the closest represent, representation that we have of what we think occurred uh, when the flood began. So modern creation scientists theorize that much of the water in the flood actually came from the ocean from, and from uh, the effects of the ocean floor, what that would have done to the ocean, as well as water uh, within the crust, for example, uh, rather than just from clouds above, which is more what we kind of think of in, in our Bible classes as kids. But keep in mind, it's also incorrect to only view this as, as involving rain and water rising. The flood is a major geologic event. The earth is totally restructured. The world that then existed perished. And that even applies to the physical side of things, not just the humans. The phrase, the fountains of the great deep were broken up, is significant. The great deep refers to the depths of the ocean. So we're talking about the breakup of the ocean floor. Proverbs 3.20 alludes to that as well. The depths were broken up. And so the flood is a major geologic event. And notice the text says that all of the fountains of the great deep are broken up. There's more than one, and all of them are broken up. And so again, this suggests the breakup of the ocean floor. Now, the order of events mentioned is also noteworthy. The fountains of the great deep are broken up. That's mentioned first. And then the rain is mentioned second, possibly a consequence of the first. And so what exactly initiates this chain of events? Did God uh, miraculously directly initiate the eruption of the fountains of the deep? Or did he use some kind of physical uh, external entities like meteorites to strike the earth and begin this process? And interestingly, there is a substantial amount of physical evidence that suggests that a lot of meteorites struck the earth during the flood. We find these meteor craters in the flood rock layers. Uh, secular geologists tell us that there are roughly 200 uh, known meteorite craters on the earth that have been verified as being from meteorites and when you look at where they struck in the rock layers, look at the dates that they give for these and convert them to the biblical time frame, we find that 57% of the confirmed meteorite impacts throughout earth history struck during the single year of the flood. Another 23% of these confirmed meteorite impacts date to the period immediately following the flood, from the flood through the Ice Age up to Abraham. So 80% of all the known meteorite impacts occurred during the flood and then immediately afterwards during the following few centuries as the earth is calming down. It's hard to ignore that. When we look at the works of the Lord, we look at the physical evidence, we see meteorite impact is a major part of what's going on here. But regardless of what starts the process, creation geologists have tried to piece together what may have occurred after the flood began based on our understanding of geology today. So geologists have determined that the interior of the earth is comprised of a solid inner core, a liquid outer core, a mantle of predominantly solid rock, although the upper part has some plasticity, and then you have the crust upon which we live. And so if we look at the crust, we look at the surface of the earth, geologists have discovered that the surface of the earth is broken up into large pieces, big chunks, what are called what we call plates. And these move around today on the order of centimeters per year, as fast as your fingernails grow. And so the earth is like a big cracked egg, and the earth is unique in that. Uh, there's, it's the only known planet to have plates that move around like this. 
So creation geologists believe that the cracking of this egg may have, at least it occurred at the beginning of the flood and may have been what initiated the flood. And interestingly, there's been a flood of recent articles by secular geologists where they're, where they're theorizing that uh, plate tectonics may have been initiated by meteorite activity, which is what creationists have been theorizing for a few decades now. So the model that describes the motion of these big chunks of, of crust that are moving around is called plate tectonics. You'll hear that term today. So how do they know plate tectonics theory is likely true and that this is something that the creationists can accept? Well, there's several ways. I talk about a lot of these in the flooded book. You can use GPS to detect the movement of the Earth's crust, and uh, that makes it pretty clear something's going on there. Uh, also, geologists have used dating methods to get the age, for example, the ocean floor, and have found that the ocean floor gets older the further away you are from the mid-ocean ridge, for example. Uh, so as you move as you move away from the ridge, going this way and this way, you have these ages matching up, and then farther out these match, farther out these match, and so it's getting older the farther you are away from this mid-ocean ridge, suggesting that new ocean floor is coming up and being made at the ridge, and has been <coughs> moved away from the ridge in both directions. Uh, and then there's what's called magnetic striping, and so when you measure the polarity of the ocean floor, if you get a uh, a, a metal detector and you get down on the ocean floor, which I wouldn't recommend, and you start walking across the ocean floor and you go across these stripes, north and south flip as you go across the stripes, which by the way has major uh, geophysical implications for what's going on in the flood. It's kind of scary, uh, but. Um, these strips match again on the opposite sides of these ridges and so even more evidence that you've got new cr crust being made and moving these plates are moving away from these ridges and of course the probably the most obvious way to see the existence of these plates is to mark the locations of earthquakes and volcanoes on the planet and they very clearly make a pattern when you map these out. Now, why in the world would earthquakes and volcanoes line up that way? <laughs> well, those are the edges of these plates. Most geologic activity on the Earth is thought to occur along the margins of these large pieces of crust. Uh, as they rub against each other. That'll cause earthquakes and volcanoes and mountain building as they're smashing into each other and so forth. So as they move relative to each other, we see different things happening. Some transform or they slide past each other like at the San Andreas Fault. Some will diverge, so they move apart and then new material from the mantle comes up into the gap to form new crust. And so you see this at the mid-ocean ridges. Some converge where they're smashing into each other and if you have two continental plates that converge it'll form mountains and if a continental plate uh, converges with an ocean plate then the ocean plate will subduct it goes below the continental plate down into the mantle and as that happens a line of volcanoes form along those ridges so mountain building is extremely slow because these plates are moving so slow so at, at uh, the rates we see going on today it would take eons for some of these mountains to form so how would creationists respond to this 
Well, um, first of all, there are several evidences for the supercontinent sometimes called Pangaea. This, the puzzle-like, um, uh, puzzle-like fit that we see when these continents are pushed together. You've surely seen how South America fits with Africa, but several of the other continents do fit together and form this, uh, this massive supercontinent. Also, when you form Pangaea, the, the rock layers, uh, rock layers continue across these plates. Mountain belts uh, continue across these plates like uh, uh, the uh, the Appalachians of the eastern US become the Caledonian mountains in Europe uh, and so you've got uh, fossil distributions that match up when these pieces are put together and so lots of explanatory power comes from this idea of the supercontinent uh, the problem is the time frame they're using they're assuming uniformitarianism uh, that's an important word and it's basically the idea that whatever you see happening today in geology it's only ever happened that way and at that rate. So plates are moving very slowly today, so they've only ever moved slowly. And, and so they're not taking into account the effects of a global flood. So looking at the actual evidence from modern geology and platonic, plate tectonics, but without the hidden assumption of uniformitarianism, creation geologists have developed our own form of this theory. Instead of plate tectonics, catastrophic plate tectonics, CPT. And this was being developed back in the early 90s when uh, John Baumgartner, who's a geophysicist, he was doing his doctoral work at UCLA in uh, geophysics and space physics, and he developed a pro- supercomputer program that models the interior of the Earth, what's going on in the mantle. And based on the predictions of his program, creation physicists and geologists and meteorologists, paleontologists jumped in and helped to develop CPT, which is a theory that is very cross-discipline in the creation community. This isn't just a geology thing, but it fits across the board with the other disciplines too. And significantly paraphrasing this model, before the flood, the plates didn't exist. The continents weren't separated. They were actually probably in a different form even than Pangaea. It's what we call Rodinia. Pangaea forms during the flood and is underwater when it forms. But at the onset of the flood, all the fountains of the great deep uh, are broken up, Genesis 7:11. So the plates break apart. And keep in mind that the fountains of the deep there may not just be referring to fountains of water, but could be referring to uh, other materials coming up as well from below the earth. And so according to catastrophic plate tectonics, something uh, something breaks up the, uh, the ocean floor, the cold, dense ocean floor, breaking it in several places, including breaking the ocean plates away from the continental plates. And according to computer simulations, when you do that, when there's a break at the boundaries between the continental plate and the ocean plates, it causes a phenomenon that is called thermal runaway subduction. So a form of subduction with the plate movement, but it's a runaway subduction, where instead of the creeping rate that the plates are moving today, the plates are are running as fast as you can run across this room. They're moving in meters per second instead of centimeters per year. Now in 1994, when this was being developed, Creation scientists made a prediction. This is important in science. If you develop a theory, you need to be able to make a prediction. We're not talking about a predictive prophecy like in the Bible. Uh, we, we make a prediction that says, if my theory is true, then when I go do these experiments, it should I should get these results. And if you don't, you've now invalidated, you falsified your theory. So creation has made a prediction. Okay, We said, if the plates have always been moving as slowly as they do today, then as the plates gradually move down into the mantle, there's plenty of time for that material to melt and recycle into the mantle. 
but if there was a time when these were moving really fast in the relatively recent past then there should be enormous piles of cooler stuff underneath the subduction zone piled up probably at the base of the mantle on the core and it hasn't yet had time to totally melt and recycle into the earth uh, and so in other words there should be enormous piles of colder stuff in the mantle well sure enough technology advanced to the point where three years later creationist predictions were verified and uh, the uh, their seismic images of the mantle's density structure were taken verifying creationist predictions and showed that there is evidence of enormous piles of cooler slabs of material in the mantle specifically under the subduction zones apparently remnants of the pre-flood ocean floor piled up on the mantle so this rapid diving causes the plates to move rapidly on the order of meters per second in other words the this the original earth configuration breaks up it's moving around rapidly it actually smashes back together and forms Pangaea that's where the Appalachians come from and so this is causing the rapid formation <coughs> of the big mountain ranges at convergence and subduction zones as these plates are smashing into each other. So you picture this this conveyor belt motion. The cold crust of the ocean floor is diving into the mantle and you have new material coming back up into the mid-ocean ridges forming new ocean floor uh, and, and this is going to be mantle coming up. So what's going to happen when this extra hot magma hits the cold water? Uh, what happens when you take water and throw it on a campfire? Uh, immediately turns that liquid water to to a vapor, right? Superheats that water and turns it into steam. So you picture that happening across the entire ocean floor. Most of the divergent zones in the earth are in the ocean. And so this is causing, this would cause intense rain across the entire uh, uh, earth as these geysers that stretch for hundreds of miles all over the earth are all erupting at the same time pumping water high up into the atmosphere which then comes back down from the heavens onto the land as rain. Alright, so now you've got all this new ocean floor being created. Uh, new magma coming up reforming the ocean floor that's displacing water from the sea onto the land now this is hot material replacing the colder pre-flood ocean floor and so whenever you heat things they expand with the one weird exception <coughs> being water but most things when you heat them they expand so the ocean is gradually as it's being overturned is going to be in more and more of a heated state the entire ocean floor which means it is less dense it is hotter, it's lighter. So essentially the ocean floor is, is uh, riding higher in the mantle. The ocean floor is going to be higher than in the pre-flood time by at least 3,500 feet. And so as the sea floor is raised, now water from the seas is spilling onto the dry land, carrying with it sea creatures, which explains why there are marine creatures all the way across the continents, not even just on the coast, but in the middle of continents, far away from the ocean, in, including on what are now high mountains, which would not have been high mountains when they originally uh, traver traversed that area, but which were pressed up in the flood as this motion is going on. So water is coming in from the ocean as the sea level is rising, in addition to water coming down from the immense geyser. And don't forget to step back. This is all you know, interesting science. Maybe not, maybe not interesting to you. I love this stuff, <laughs> but don't, but don't forget to step back and think about what we're learning about God. People aren't just drowning. That would have been the easy way to go. Okay, all right. So tsunamis. I mean, tsunamis come from underground, underwater earthquakes, 
imagine the tsunamis that are wrecking the uh, the uh, the coasts it is totally uh, taking the pre-flood crust all the rock and breaking it down to grain size and spreading it across the entire uh, pre-flood continent remaking the surface of the earth all right so all while that's going on Keep in mind all the meteorite activity occurring. Uh, I took a simulation of what secular geologists think about uh, the configurations of the Earth in the past, and I'm going to start this uh, simulation in a minute, where you'll see the, the plates move and so forth. And then I put in there where the meteorite impacts would have been occurring during the flood, as the flood is going on, and so you've got, you'll have the accumulation of sediment over here, and you'll see where these meteorites are impacting uh, as, these as these continents are moving around and uh, you keep in mind that these are only the meteorite craters that have been discovered thus far and also obviously any meteorites that struck the ocean areas during the flood wouldn't have wouldn't have left craters which is why verified meteorite craters are generally land craters so you have to add a lot more meteorites striking during the flood to get a better estimate of what's going on here uh, so so far there's over 100 meteorite craters that have been found on the earth uh, on the land that correlate to the flood, but 70% of the surface of the earth is in the ocean, so if we take what we know about the land and extrapolate to the ocean, you need to add in another 230 meteorites that are striking during the floods. Over 330 meteorites hitting the earth during this event. And so notice now you've got some other ways you could die <laughs> during the flood as well. So meteorites are a significant part of the flood. Now, let's look at Psalm 104. You covered the earth with the deep, as with a garment. The waters stood above the mountains. At your rebuke they fled. At the sound of your thunder they took to flight. The mountains rose. The valley sank down to the place that you appointed for them. You set a boundary that they might not pass, so that they might not again cover the earth. Now in light of verse 9, it seems clear this passage, at least this section of this scripture, is referring to the flood, not creation week. Otherwise, this passage would have been violated when the flood occurred. So if this is referring to the flood, it makes sense because uh, catastrophic plate tectonics has the mountains forming during the flood and particularly later in the flood. This is several weeks into the flood as these plates are smashing into each other. Now interestingly, now due to the formation of the mountains in the flood, it is now impossible for there to be enough water to again have a flood like that. A boundary has been created by the formation of the mountains. By the mountains rising and the valleys sinking, a boundary was set where water might not again cover the earth. Well, according to the text, the rain itself continues for 40 uninterrupted days and nights, but that wasn't the extent of the catastrophe because the waters apparently continued to rise for some time after that. This might be due to uh, the ocean floor continuing to be completely overhauled, uh, but the rising waters eventually level out and apparently begin to decrease on the 150th day. This is five months from the beginning of the flood, and keep in mind there's so many things I could talk about about this. Uh, the dinosaurs like the last thing buried they're at the top of of hundreds and hundreds of meters of sediment and they're still alive because we find their footprints and so they're still alive for weeks as all of this is going on and in the water it finally uh, it's them, I say water, um, uh, I don't think that they're even being killed by the water. They're being killed, for example, the, the dinosaur excavation I was doing in Wyoming, they're being killed by, they're being obliterated by the Rockies forming over here. 
as the Rockies are forming, it is causing. Oh, yeah, I could talk about that. No time. We got to move on. Uh, now, uh, during that catastrophic period, the typical Earth processes, seasons, day and night, and so forth, are totally disrupted. And after the flood, God promises that He's not going to allow that to happen again. And again, this is exactly what we would have expected with this catastrophic plate tectonics. All right, so returning to this big question uh, that we, you know, how could the flood be global? How could there be enough water to cover the earth prevailing over the mountains over 20 feet? Well, with this model that I've showed you, you might already know the answer to that. So looking on the science side, remember the catastrophic plate tectonics would say that the water came primarily from the seas, both in the form of rain from these geysers and from uh, added water um, being uh, due to the ocean floor being totally overhauled. Keeping in mind also Psalm 104, that your taller mountains are forming during the flood and we recall from catastrophic plate tectonics that they're they're forming as these plates are smashing into each other well then that implies that the pre-flood world must have been much flatter and so notice it would have wouldn't have been nearly as hard to cover the land with water at that point because the tall mountains wouldn't have even been formed until later in the flood during the recession period. So you picture a much flatter earth, one with a lower elevation, covering the highest points of the earth by day 40 wouldn't require anywhere near the amount of water it would require today. Now why are we putting on a jacket? I'm ready to strip down myself. (laughs) (laughs) So where did all the water go after the flood? You can probably think through this. So first of all, as the ocean floor is being raised, and this intense geyser activity is going on, that's already dumping more sediment onto the continents, raising the level of the pre-flood continents. And then the mountains are forming at these convergence and subduction boundaries. That raises the land more in those areas. And so notice, without the water going anywhere, the continents now are higher in elevation. It's going to make them stick up out of the water more than in pre-flood times. But then there's a more important factor here. So the ocean floor... Uh, remember is diving into the mantle new material is coming up replacing it and it's hotter the entire ocean floor gets totally overhauled with much hotter material so it's in an expanded state riding higher in the mantle it pushes the seafloor up now what's going to happen as it cools it's going to go right back down where it was which is the recession so all the water goes straight back to the ocean where it came from as that new material cools So that would then allow that water to go back there. So bottom line, there's no problem from science in explaining where the water would have come from and where it went. Now you've got other scientific evidences that demand that this is a global event. The Cambrian explosion is the worldwide explosion of fossils that begins at the base of the fossil record. And it totally uh, disproves evolution because it's an explosion of life. It's already, there's simple life, but there's also complex life. There's no evolutionary history. It's an explosion of life across the entire planet. This is global. It's not like what we see today when you have localized catastrophes that might cause conditions that could fossilize something. It is a worldwide event involving a lot of water and a lot of sediment moving at the same time. So you've got to picture something uh, major, catastrophic going on on a worldwide scale. Another evidence, you have long distance travel of sediment. So when you look at the material found in the rock layers in various places, like at the Grand Canyon, in many cases, what geologists believe to be the source of the material that is found there will be hundreds to thousands of miles away. And whenever it's finally deposited, it is hundreds of feet thick 
Like at Grand Canyon, you got like a mile of sediment. Right? This is not what we see happening today. This is continent-wide, at least, transportation of material in huge amounts. Again, this suggests a global catastrophe. Another evidence, mega seismites, and I could spend a lot of time here. This is some of the work I did in Wyoming. Basically, just zooming through this, uh, you find <coughs> seismites happen whenever you have a, an earthquake that happens today, and it shakes wet sediment. Well, in the flood layers, we find enormous uh, seismites. We're talking uh, mega seismites that are instead of just a few inches, they're meters in height. And a lot of times you find the dinosaurs sticking out of these. They're being obliterated by the earthquakes that are, that are uh, happening during the flood. There is no modern reference point to understand the power of these earthquakes. We don't even have, this wouldn't be on the Richter scale. There's like no way to even measure these. They would have to be termed unearthly is what they would have to say because there's no known earthly mechanism to create these. You have to picture plates smashing into each other forming like the Rocky Mountains fast. And that explains, would explain, presumably, these seismites. All right, a lot more I can say about that. Other evidences, starting at the Cambrian explosion, so at the beginning, the very base of the fossil record, you have worldwide sandstone beds that are laid down by some kind of major catastrophic worldwide event involving a lot of water. You jump across these layers from in, in the U.S., jump across the ocean, they keep going across the entire planet. Again, these aren't localized beds of sediment like you see today. These are worldwide beds. That they begin at the Cambrian explosion and then similar worldwide beds continue on up through the geologic column to the point at which the flood is thought by many to end above the Mesozoic layers. And also, as you'd expect, sedimentary rock is the dominant rock found throughout those worldwide layers. Sedimentary rock being rock generally agreed to be rock formed from water activity. All right, so now you move to, so science doesn't allow a local flood. That's the bottom line. It's got to be global. When you look at the Bible, of course, you know, uh, the Bible doesn't allow for this either, although a lot of people try to uh, try to make it that. If it's local, why in the world do you build an army? You've got 120 years, just, just vacate the area. And why, why send, God is sending the animals to Noah anyway. Why not just send them out of the area? Doesn't make any sense. How would the ark be able to stay afloat for several months? if this is just local. and How would the biblical terminology that describes the water as covering the high mountains under the whole heaven, how can that be describing a local flood? How could water even get high enough locally to cover a mountain if the flood isn't greater in its extent? How could the biblically stated purpose of wiping man from the face of the whole earth be accomplished with a local flood? If the flood was local, then isn't it true that God lied? I mean, God promised he was never going to destroy the earth again with a flood like the one that he did. Okay, so if it was local, haven't there been a few local floods since then? This can't be local. Also, Peter used the universal destruction of the earth and the flood to describe what Judgment Day would be like. And so if the flood isn't universal, then logically Judgment Day wouldn't be either. Why would the seasons have been affected if this is just a local flood, where you got seed time, harvest, winter, summer, day and night stop during the flood? Doesn't sound like a local flood. Why does the dove not find no resting place for the sole of her foot when doves can actually go great distances uh, and, and, uh, and therefore could surely find dry areas? So the Bible just doesn't leave room for a local flood interpretation. Either the Bible's right, that there was a global flood, and, and then there's no reason to question the Bible's claim 
that there was a global flood scientifically, or the entire Bible's wrong as well as science and all of our observations. Uh, you'd have to just have a blind faith that there wasn't one. But that Psalm 104 passage is critical in, in so much of this. So notice, here's a, here's a depiction of the flood maybe that you've never seen. <laughs> you know, we typically think of just the rain and the, the animals. It's a pleasure cruise. We're having a good time on the ark. This is where you want to be. No, I don't even think you want to be on the ark when this happens. I mean, the stuff you're witnessing. Um, and, and keep in mind, what does this say about God? We're supposed to be thinking about God, what he did. Uh, it's fun, but it's alarming because he didn't want us to forget this because it tells us about him. It tells what God thinks about sin. It tells us that he's a holy God and what that means. Uh, he, it does tell us also about his concern for his people, doesn't it? You learn that. Those people that are trying to live righteous lives. Remember, Jesus called the attention of his audience back to the flood. Matthew 24. He doesn't want us to forget this event. As the days of Noah were, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. For as in the days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying, giving in marriage. They're not, they're not worried about it. Until the day that Noah entered the ark and did not know until the flood came and took them all away. So also will the coming of the Son of Man be. Took them all away. That's all you get. That's what the Bible tells us. Maybe you know a little bit more now about what that means. Again, now you see drowning would have been the easy way to go. Disintegration, burning, mutilation, crushing. These are words that you would expect with the model that I've laid out here for you. The flood is a physical depiction of the holiness of God. When you see a high mountain, you're thinking, oh, wow, that's so pretty. Look at what God did. It should be more like, look at what God did. Right? You, look, you should look at a mountain differently when you understand what created that. The flood is a reminder about God's holiness and the necessity of human repentance if we want to please Him. Judgment can always be right around the corner when you least expect it. But it's also a reminder that those like Noah who obey God can be saved through water and receive the benefits of God's grace. Once the divine long-suffering, you know, God was long-suffering dealing with a world like that whose every intention was only evil. He waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight souls out of, I would say, on the low end, 215 million, based on my statistical analysis of that, were saved through water. There's also an antitype which now saves us, baptism, right? Which the world around us, including the people that would proclaim God, do not accept it. I don't want it. And guess what? They're just like the people Noah was dealing with. And we can all be that way too. You know, we shouldn't be on our high horse and think we're somehow different. There may be a part of our life where we can be that way too and just be unwilling to accept what God has to say. We just don't like it. Well, now we see what happens. Judgment can be right around the corner. So Lord willing, uh, we will all uh, go to heaven together and we can have our attitudes straight and make sure that we uh, we live the kind of holy lives that God expects us to live. Uh, all right, um, if you know of any teens... It would be good to study this stuff as like a high school uh, credit. I do that out in Arizona for teens that are in high school. 
where, I, where they can get credits, usually homeschoolers, but others can do it too, where I teach them flood science out there, like at the Grand Canyon and Petrified Forest and Meteor Crater and all these places, and they get to see all these things. In, um, it's immersive, an immersive kind of uh, experience. So if you know of any young people that would be good to, to do that with, then be sure to let me know. Thank you for your attention.